0: Our scripture this morning is Acts 19:1 through 20. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?" They answered, "No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit." So Paul asked them, "What baptism did you receive?" "John's baptism," they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Would you pray with me once again? Father, we are thankful for your word. We acknowledge that it sometimes seems odd, even weird to us. We're removed by thousands of years and multiple cultures from it. So we pray that through your spirit you would overcome those challenges and help it to speak directly into our lives. Father, you're our Heavenly Father. You know what we need far better. Than we do. So we pray that this morning as we approach your word, you would offer us exactly what we need, whether that be comfort or correction, encouragement or conviction. Father, we thank you for your power and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week as I was reading and preparing uh, for the, the message, I was reading one commentary that said this passage, this chapter is a preacher's nightmare. Uh, There's a lot going on, so it's not for lack of good information in this chapter, but it's hard to find kind of one unifying theme that connects all the different episodes together. Add to that the fact that I preached this chapter a year and a half ago, it was a challenging week. It felt a little bit like my experience of threading a needle. You know, just when I feel like I've got it, It falls away. So it was a challenging week, but as I I read and kept pressing on this text, this weird image kept coming to mind. I'm not talking about, you know, dreams and visions kind of image, just this weird kind of metaphor. A lot of the Bibles that I was reading and commentaries, uh, the title over this chapter is Paul in Ephesus kind of, you know, humdrum, kind of a boring title for a chapter. One of them, though, said, the gospel comes to Ephesus. And that's what gave rise to this kind of weird picture, this weird metaphor of a celebrity with their entourage coming into town. It's not something I've seen very often, Not many celebrities with their entourages are coming to Bloomington or to small towns in Pennsylvania where I used to live. But last summer we were, or I'm sorry, last October, we were in Orlando. And I can't even remember which theme park we were at. They kind of all start to blend together there. But we were walking through the park and someone famous with an entourage was walking in the opposite direction. Now, I honestly usually could care less about those things, and at that time, I was starving and had my mind set on getting to the cooler with the pizza in it, so I didn't care, but my wife and Caleb took off to try and find out who this person was with this entourage. I mean, they had people around them, probably bodyguards, they had photographers and cameramen, and well, they found them and still couldn't figure out who they were, so they were probably you know, internet famous or Disney Channel famous or something like that, but not really famous but you no know, that image is kind of what gave rise to a connection in this text when the gospel comes to town or when the gospel comes into a person's life it doesn't come alone it doesn't come unaccompanied the gospel always comes with the holy spirit always brings repentance and conflict. We've seen that over and over and over again throughout this book of Acts in this series. Last week we looked at Paul in Corinth, fruitful ministry there, filled with conflict. After that, Paul leaves Corinth, he was there for about 18 months to two years, leaves Corinth Eventually, finds his way back down to Syria and then to Jerusalem, and that brings to close his second missionary journey. We're in Acts 19 now, just a, a chapter later, and he's on his third missionary journey. He's traveled from Jerusalem up through the interior, ministered in Galatia, which is the central part of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and has now made his way all the way to the west of Turkey to a city of Ephesus, a large port city. At least at that time, it was a port city. Now the port has been kind of covered over with silt, and Ephesus is seven miles inland now. But at the time, it was a major commerce center because of the port, the harbor. It was an influential city. It was a city that was well-known, renowned for its temple to Artemis. The cult of Artemis was kind of at the heart of the city. And Paul finds his way there and ends up ministering in Ephesus for three full years. But Paul doesn't, doesn't go. Paul brings, him, brings with him the gospel. And the gospel has tremendous impact on this city. Because with the gospel comes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes too. Now it's very, very true That the Holy Spirit works as uh, the advance party for the gospel. Going ahead of the preaching of the gospel. Preparing people's hearts and minds to receive the gospel. Tilling the soil so that the seed falls on fertile ground. That is an absolute truth that is highlighted throughout the New Testament. But that's not the focus here. The focus of this chapter, at least the early portion... Is how the Holy Spirit comes once people receive the gospel and is, in essence, the stay behind party, the permanent resident of those in those who have received the gospel. Now, you have to be careful reading this passage because some have misread it and drawn some, I would say, very faulty and even dangerous theological conclusions based on a misreading of this passage. Some have read this and said that the Holy Spirit is a second kind of blessing that comes after conversion. You can be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. And they point to this text and say, look at, these men were disciples. Paul identified them as disciples, and yet they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Not yet. That was a second subsequent blessing that came later. I think that's a flawed reading, and I'll explain why in a second. And it leads to, in my opinion, very dangerous theological conclusions. Because, A, it creates a, a hierarchy among believers, You have ordinary believers. And then you have believers who experience the Spirit. And it also creates this category of Christians who don't have the Spirit. Which means they're Christians who are stripped of assurance and confidence in their eternal state. Jesus says that I'm leaving you the Holy Spirit as a down payment on your future inheritance. If you're a Christian without the Holy Spirit, you're a Christian without that down payment. You're a Christian without that surety and security. A Christian without the Holy Spirit is also a Christian without, without power. The Holy Spirit comes and gives the believer power to obey Power to overcome sin in their life. Power. we see this all throughout the gospel, all throughout the book of Acts. power to testify boldly. A Christian without the Holy Spirit is a Christian without power, without assurance, without fruit. It's the spirit that produces the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering. Not us. So a Christian without Spirit would be a Christian without, without fruit, a Christian with, without a guide to illuminate Scripture, without a guide in the path of wisdom and the way of God. A Christian without the Holy Spirit will be a Christian without the presence of God in their life. Uh, those are dangerous conclusions drawn from a misreading of this text. I think there's a much better way to read this passage. Based partly on clearer passages in the New Testament. That's a a great principle of interpretation. When there's parts of Scripture that are fuzzy, not clear, and they're there, right? It's always good to interpret those in light of passages where the teaching is explicit and is clear. And again, in in Jesus' words, his promises, in Paul's letters, in the letters of John, it's very clear that the gift of the holy spirit is for all believers for all christians and he distributes his gifts to all christians to all believers but even looking at this text this text there's reason to understand that what's happening here is a little bit more nuanced it says that paul came in and he found some disciples the word disciple is often used of christians But not exclusively. It's more probable that these were disciples of John. Who had heard John's message, his call to repentance, his announcement that the Messiah was coming. Whose sandals he was not even worthy to untie. But hadn't heard the full message yet. So Paul comes in and he identifies them as disciples. But he... Notices something isn't quite right yet. And so he begins to probe. He says, Have you received the Holy Spirit? And they answered, No, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Well, well then whose baptism did you receive? And they answered, John the Baptist's. John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And so Paul baptizes them. In the name of Jesus, having taught them and explained to them more fully what John was pointing to, paving the way for Jesus the Messiah. So having believed now the full story and accepted that, they're baptized into the name of the Lord and they receive the fullness, the gift, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you see the power of the Holy Spirit manifest in their life immediately. They could begin to, to prophesy and to speak in tongues. This passage, and as you wrestle with it, it reminded me of the profound gift that the Holy Spirit is in the believer's life. I mean, just contemplating what the Christian life would be like apart from the Holy Spirit, It's something I don't want to contemplate. Absence, you've heard this statement, I'm sure, millions of times, right? That's an exaggeration. Dozens of times. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. I experienced that when my wife travels. A couple weeks ago, she was gone for almost a full week. And I remembered all the things that she does that makes our household kind of tick, like clockwork. And I missed her, too. It wasn't just the things she does. I genuinely missed her. Contemplating what life apart from the Holy Spirit would be like makes me so much more appreciate what the Spirit does in our life and appreciate His very presence. When I doubt my faith, when I doubt my security, John says, there's an inner voice who speaks louder. Or or there's a, a witness who speaks louder than that inner voice of condemnation. And it's the Spirit. The Spirit gives confidence. The Spirit speaks words of encouragement. The Spirit continues to point the way. The Spirit gives gifts for ministry. If I felt like for a moment ministry depended on my own capabilities... I'm, I'm checking out. I'm done. The Spirit gives gifts. The Spirit produces fruit. The Spirit is the presence of God in my life. I'm not alone. The Spirit is real and present and makes Christ present in my life. Just contemplating for a moment life apart from the Spirit makes us appreciate all the more, and want to rely all the more, and get to know all the more the work, the power, and the person of the Holy Spirit. So the gospel comes to town, comes into these 12 men's, these disciples' life, and with the gospel comes the Spirit. And before we move on from contemplating the Spirit, maybe you're asking yourself, well, what about all those miracles that were going on? tongues and prophecy, and it says extraordinary miracles were going on through the Apostle Paul. Handkerchiefs that were touched by the Apostle Paul were used to heal and cast out demons. Why don't we experience those kind of miracles now? I probably get that question more often than I get any theological question. There's two parts from my perspective to that answer. First is we have to understand the uniqueness of what's going on in the book of Acts. It's a unique time in redemptive history. Miracles were authenticating the gospel, were authenticating the presence of the church, the authority of the apostles, which were foundational for the rest of the period of redemptive history that we're in now. They needed authenticating in a unique way. That's part of it. The second part of my answer is miracles are happening daily, if we define miracles correctly. Consider conversions, just for a moment. Conversions are miraculous things. We see conversions in this church, I I love it. And I love seeing the baptisms that follow. Fantastic testimonies to the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. Conversions aren't just someone making up their mind, making a decision, a choice. Conversions are far more than that. They're rebirths, they're resurrections. One who is dead spiritually, being made alive. They're dry bones being animated again. Conversions are miracles and they're happening around us. They're testimony to the power of the Spirit. So why don't we see miracles? Because we don't define miracles correctly. We see miracles all the time. When someone yields their life to Christ and is reborn into the kingdom of God. With the gospel comes the power of the Holy Spirit... And with the gospel, you see repentance, too. Repentance and faith or repentance and genuine belief are flip sides of the same coin. You don't have one without the other. You cannot have a one-sided coin. It does not work. You don't have genuine belief or faith without repentance, uh, they come together when the gospel is proclaimed you see many expressions various expressions of repentance here in acts chapter 19 uh, the one that stands out probably the most clearly right is those who had practiced sorcery and magic they bring with them their their magic scrolls and burn them and, and the sum of money that is represented in those scrolls is incredible. It it depends on what commentary you read, but it's somewhere between a million dollars and some have estimated more than 15 million dollars worth of value in those scrolls that were burned as an expression of repentance. I've been a part of kind of repentance things that look like that. Growing up in a more fundamentalist Baptist church. Every once in a while, in a youth group, we'd have a "bring your CDs and smash 'em for Jesus" kind of <laughs> party. I gotta be honest; I always held back my favorites. Usually, rebought the ones that I broke. <laughs> Sometimes repentance looks like this. Sometimes repentance is costly, it's public, it's demonstrative, but not always. Uh, Others in this passage, it said, came and they, they openly confessed what they had done. Those kind of public displays of smashing or burning or cutting off. Not always necessary, not always possible. How do you publicly smash pride? or arrogance, or lust, or greed. But they confessed. They acknowledged sin. Confessed either openly or confessed to brothers. And there's wonderful grace that is to be found in confession. Freedom and release from guilt and shame that can be found in confession. That was part of the expressions repentance, there were still others that I think were even more subtle than that. If you keep reading in Acts 19, there's a riot that erupts. Because again, Ephesus was a city renowned for its temple to Artemis, and there was all kinds of trades that went around the temple. One tradesman, a silversmith named Demetrius, caused a ruckus. He said, Paul is telling people that idols made by human hands are no real gods at all. And we're losing, read between the lines, we're losing money on this. Why? Because for people who had embraced the gospel, repentance for them meant we're no longer going to go and spend money in the temple, we're no longer going to go and buy little Artemis gods for our mantles and our homes. It was a more subtle form of repentance. It was just a, a ceasing of the sinful, idolatrous behavior. But it caused a stir. They didn't throw a big party and melt their Artemis gods. That would have immediately caused chaos. A believer who comes to faith in Christ from another religion doesn't need to go out and burn their sacred books from another religion. But they they confessed and they repented and they turned in faith and belief. Does that mean that every sin issue was dealt with immediately? Absolutely not. The Christian life is a life of continual faith and continual repentance. There's no indication that these believers made a once-for-all final break with all of their sin. But the groundwork was laid. The gospel came, and with it, this, this habit of repentance. Just as we grow in faith and grow in belief, we ought to be growing in repentance. As the Holy Spirit does his work in our life, part of that work is a convicting work. We grow to know more of God's holiness more of his righteousness, more of his will. And the deeper we grow in that knowledge, the more and more our sin is exposed, the more and more we need constant repentance. Now, if you're anything like me, repentance carries a negative connotation. Faith, belief, those are positive. Repentance sounds more negative and we've done ourselves a disservice by how we describe repentance. We usually say faith is turning towards God. Repentance is turning away from sin. It's very true. I'd like to think more of repentance in positive terms. It's not just turning away from sin. It's turning towards holiness. It's embracing godliness. It's embracing life as God intends it to be for us. I think repentance sometimes carries a negative connotation because we don't see or accept sin for what it truly is. We see sin as fun. So repentance is turning our back on fun. Uh, We treat sin like it's cute, And cuddly and manageable, pleasurable, part of being, you know, in the world. We don't see sin as the lion crouching at our door ready to devour. If we saw sin for what it was, turning away from it would be fantastic. Not negative, joy filled, life giving. it's a good thing. It's a good thing to turn towards God in faith and to turn towards him and embrace holiness and goodness. With the gospel came the Holy Spirit, and with the gospel, part of that gospel entourage was repentance. Part of that gospel entourage is also conflict. I think we've seen that in nearly every chapter of the book of Acts. Some people are just lightning rods for controversy and conflict. It it just finds them, right? The gospel is like that. Conflict finds the gospel. The The gospel creates conflict. Sometimes it's conflict with those who overtly oppose the gospel because they love their sin. Or they love their idols to Artemis. Or they love their false religion. Sometimes the conflict is explicitly with evil. You see that here. As the demonic begins to stir and become more violent. A few weeks ago when John was preaching on that wonderful story of the slave girl who kept walking around harassing the apostles... He made a comment that has stuck with me, and I'm not going to quote it exactly right, but that's okay. I asked John, and he couldn't quote it exactly right either. But he said, when the gospel comes, evil stands up and takes notice. And there's conflict. But think for a moment about the conflict in your own life that happens. In your internal life that happens when the gospel comes. Because the gospel comes and roots up some of our most deeply entrenched idols, our most deeply entrenched beliefs and desires. The idol of self, the idol of will worship, the idol of self reliance that says, you can do it, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That is so deeply entrenched in us that when the gospel comes and says, No, you cannot, you cannot do it. You cannot please God. You cannot pull yourself up on the bootstraps. There is an internal conflict that happens. As self dies, it's killed by grace so that it can live again. That's a conflict created by the gospel and there's this conflict with sin again the more we grow in grace the more this conflict is apparent if you're here and you're discouraged because you're still battling sin let me offer you this word of encouragement don't be discouraged by that that's normal that's good. If there is no conflict with sin, that's when I worry. Before you became a believer, before the gospel invaded your life, there was no conflict with sin. There was only indulgence. Maybe you limited it for self-interest's sake, but there was no battle. When you embraced the gospel, when the, the gospel overtook your life, that's when the battle started. That's when the conflict really heats up. And it lasts a lifetime. The fact that you're battling sin is not supposed to be discouraging. You're not battling sin on your own, you're battling sin with the grace of God and the power and the resources of the Holy Spirit in your life. So keep battling, it's not abnormal. Welcome to the Christian life. Uh, There's a connection that I think we've implied a lot. Maybe we need to make explicit. The book of Acts follows the Gospels. The stories that come in the book of Acts follow the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The conflict that happens throughout the book of Acts follows the decisive victory of Jesus Christ over all the forces of evil, over Satan, over sin, even over death. The conflict we see in the book of Acts, those are just the last throws. The last throes of a defeated enemy trying to do a little bit of damage still on the way down. And the wonderful advance we see of the kingdom of God, of the church, made possible Because of the death and new life in Jesus. His resurrection. And all the gifts that we see poured out on believers in the book of Acts. All gifts unlocked for us by the cross. If you want to talk more about how the cross, the death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ unlocks God's gifts in your life. I would love the opportunity to talk with you more about that. John, Bob, Josiah, Rob, anyone of the elders, find someone sitting next to you. And if they don't want to explain it to you or don't know how to explain it, they'll find someone. As you read through the book of Acts, as we've gone chapter by chapter, all these things that we read and see about, are Christ continuing to work, continuing to bless his church through the Spirit? Our greatest desire is that that would be our experience as a church. That would be your experience as an individual who follows, who follows Christ in grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you how it it humbles us, how it challenges us and it stretches us. And Father, in everything it does, you're there. You're there to pick us up when we're crushed. You're there to carry us when we don't have the strength. Your grace is sufficient for every one of our needs. Father, we thank you that you do call us to repentance that the gospel comes and exposes sin and the remedy for sin. And you don't leave us powerless, you give us your spirit. Your spirit to overcome, your spirit to be triumphant, your spirit to sustain us until you return and bring all the good things that you've promised to fruition. Father, we pray that you'd keep us faithful until then. In Jesus' precious name,
0: amen.